Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. That song really implies the reality of something that we need to know, and that is we are desperate. And the fact is, is we, we don't feel desperate sometimes. Sometimes we feel kind of like we got our act together and we're not all that needy. Um, but the gospel and the word of God and uh, the reality of human life tells us that we are desperate for God and we're desperate chiefly for Jesus Christ. And so um, regardless of how you feel right now, whether you feel desperate or whether you feel really intact, uh, let's go to the Lord and ask for Him to help us in our time of need. Father, we approach Your throne in this moment. And we know that You are sufficient and powerful. You, you meet needs that only You can meet. You provide strength where we are weak. You provide wisdom where we are foolish, you, you provide help where we are needy, you provide love where we are depleted of, of, of confidence in your love. We, we know that you provide everything that we need. And so we approach you as your children and plead with you to meet us at the point of our greatest need this morning. Provide to us the, the life that comes from the Holy Spirit who has been given to us and implanted in us. Oh Lord, speak to us through Your Spirit. Give us a vision for our lives that is greater than the the confines of our own self-centered view of the world and of the plans that we have made. And, and help us to see with new eyes and help us to feel with a new heart and help us to, to go out in this life with a sense of, of vision and passion for Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we... Pray that You will flood our emptiness with Your fullness and grant us joy as we do it. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, the United States of America is basically a democratic republic. Um, a democratic republic is, is a form of government um, in which supreme power is held by the people and their elected representatives. Decisions are made by the people, or at least by the, the leaders whom the people have elected to represent them. So, the United States is not a monarchy. A, a monarchy is a form of government in which a specific family embodies the country's 
national identity as its head. Okay, now that's very important. The, the monarch, the, the king, exercises sovereign rule, sovereign reign over the nation. And the king rules and reigns in such a way that the nation is intended to take on the character and the nature and the identity of the monarch, of the king. All right, so, so the United States doesn't have a kingship. It doesn't have a monarchy. But, but this, this is what I want to ask you this morning. If you lived in a monarchy, what kind of king would you want? What kind of attributes, what kind of, what kind of personality, what, what kind of actions would you want your king to possess? Okay, love, wisdom, justice, sacrifice, empathy, compassion, strength, faithfulness, loyalty. Exactly. Oh, those, those are excellent. Now, if you know the history of the world, you realize that so many kings in the history of the world have, have not demonstrated that, those kinds of attributes. Because there is something that's true generally of human beings is that absolute power corrupts absolutely. That the more autonomy and the more power that an individual receives, the more corrupt that person will become. And the more self-centered and the more greedy and the more manipulative and deceitful and narcissistic an individual or even a family will become. Church, I want to say to you that Jesus of Nazareth was the perfect king. Think of it with me for a few minutes. He was humble, not arrogant. Even his birth in, in, a, in, a, in a barn, as it were, in a, in a town with no, no celebration, no, no parade, here he is, ushered in to planet Earth as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and there's no celebration and there's no wonderful action among people, but rather it's very humble and very lowly and, and, and very little. And even in his ministry, he was humble. He was a servant rather than coming to be served. He, he's the one who got down on his knees as we've already studied in previous weeks and washed his disciples' feet. He was a servant. He was humble rather than arrogant. He, he was truthful, not deceitful. Like He didn't tell people what they wanted to hear. He told people the absolute truth. Even in times when it would be... 
you know, he would have a temptation to kind of soften the blow when a, a rich ruler comes to him and basically says, what, what must I do to in, inherit the, the kingdom of the earth? And, and he says, well, obey the commandments. And he says, well, I've done all of that. And he says, well, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. Jesus could have tried to soften the blow a little bit in order to gain a very rich follower so that his ministry could get really big and have the resources finally that it might seem to, to, to need to finally explode that you in a way that you would think that Jesus' ministry should explode. Instead, Jesus looks at that man in the eyes and speaks to him the unvarnished truth. That's the kind of king that he was. He was personal and not detached. Think about the way that Jesus is approaching the town and Zacchaeus, the sinful tax collector, is up in that tree. And as Jesus walks by, instead of ignoring Zacchaeus, he looks up at Zacchaeus and makes eye contact with him and speaks his name and calls him down from that tree and tells him, I'm going to dine at your house tonight, Zacchaeus. Think about the woman who was caught in adultery in the act and Jesus looks at her and loves her and forgives her and commissions her as an ambassador of His. He was personal as a king, not detached. And as one of you mentioned, He was strong. He was powerful, not feeble. I mean, He had the power as a king to, to do whatever He wanted. And, and the disciples, when they had a, a large group of people, maybe as many as 20,000 people gathered around, the disciples are telling Jesus, hey, disperse all these people. Tell them, tell them to go home because they, they're going to need to eat and they're tired and everything else. And, and Jesus, as the great king and strong king, He takes five loaves and two fish and provides enough food for everybody, the thousands upon thousands, to eat and be refreshed and to be blessed as He then preaches the good news of the Gospel to them. He was powerful. He, he's in the boat and the, the storm is coming and it's raging and, and, and the Scripture says that, that the, the boat was being swamped with water and they go down and they wake Jesus up and He goes out and He calms the raging sea. He, he was powerful as a king. And He was bold. He wasn't bashful. He told the hypocritical religious leaders that they were like whitewashed tombs. That, that they were pretty on the outside, but on the inside, they, they, were, they were like dead men's bones. Like he just told them like it was. Like you guys are empty. This is an empty religion that you guys are promoting and that you are preaching. He was bold and strong in his declarations. And that's what you want from a good king. He, he was wise and not foolish. He was wise in the small ways like every day and consistently he would pray to his father and seek the help of his father. And he was wise in his words and the message that he constantly preached and the principles that he laid out to all who followed him. Listen to the words of Jesus and you're listening to the wisest king who ever lived. He was impartial, not prejudiced. Think about his love for children. The disciples tried to try to swoo the children away like Jesus is too important for that. He said, no, wait a minute, let the little children come to me. 
And then a lot of people in those kinds of days really just kind of um, thought of women as second-class citizens. But if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you will find is that Jesus had a big following among women, and he loved women in such a way that he gave them identity and value, and some of the women were his very best friends in his ministry. Because as a king, he wasn't partial, he wasn't prejudiced, he wasn't biased. He loved children and women and men and Gentiles and Jews and Samaritans. It did not matter because he was that kind of king. He was patient and not vengeful. Even among those who were closest to him. I mean, if you think about what you want out of a good king, you you want someone who's loyal and who's strong and who is faithful as someone has already articulated. And the disciples on multiple occasions and in multiple ways proved that they were disloyal and unfaithful to Jesus, or at least unbelieving in Him. And yet, as a great king, Jesus persisted in His loyalty to them and faithfulness to them and would even go to them and restore them instead of swooing them away. He was courageous, not cowardly. He stood in the face of opposition. He didn't run away in times of trouble. He stood up to the test. When Satan came and tempted him and offered him the world, Jesus stood in the face of that temptation. And he was strong, and he was biblical, and he was wise, and he passed that test. And when others would come to him, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the angry mob, and even Pilate, as we saw last week, Jesus stood tall and firm as a great king. But as you open your Bibles up right now to John chapter 19, what you see is that even though he was the perfect king, Compassionate, not callous. Wise, not foolish. Humble, not arrogant. Truthful, not deceitful. Personal, not detached. Impartial, not prejudiced. Loyal, not fickle. What did he receive? He received execution. Our passage today is 16b through 37. This is the perfect king at the climax of his life, which happened to be also his death. So they, the Roman soldiers, took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the King of the Jews, But rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. 
also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom... They have pierced. John wants us to consider eight, eight different aspects of the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross. And in doing so, he wants us to be moved in in our attitude toward Jesus to believe in Him, to trust Him, to bow down to Him, to worship Him. That's John's goal. And so let's walk through this and seek by God's grace to move in that direction in these moments that we have. The first aspect of Jesus' suffering and death is the crucifixion of His body. The crucifixion of His body. 16 through 18 right here. They took Jesus and, and he's bearing his own cross. This was common. So up on the hill at Golgotha, they already have the vertical beam implanted into the, the ground. It's, it's ready to go. But the horizontal beam 
they generally are going to make the person who is enduring the crucifixion carry it from the place that he has been scourged to the place where he's going to be crucified. And crucifixion was accompanied with scourging. And there are those who believe that Jesus received more than one scourging, more than the 40 lashes minus one, in that he's been beaten multiple times throughout this process. And so his back is completely skinless. His, his, he's bloodied and his entrails are actually coming out out. And even in the moment of, of this reality, he's actually having to hold his, his cross beam, his horizontal beam, and carry it up to the place called Golgotha. It's called the place of a skull because likely the place where he was crucified looked like a skull in the background, rock and, and, and a hillside and whatnot. And so people called it the place of a skull because that's exactly what it looked like. And they probably called it the place of a skull because that's where those who were crucified were executed. And in the Roman executions, it was commonplace for the Romans to leave the crucified individuals up on the cross, not just for hours, but for days. And in leaving them there for days, finally they would get eaten and plucked out long since they were dead by vultures and birds and everything else so that what would be remaining up on the cross would just be a remnant of a human body after a number of days. And then it would be taken down. But in that, the crucifixion was a symbol of shame. The worst of the worst only got crucified. It was, it was either prisoners of war who had shamed themselves in some way, or it was uh, those who were creating an insurrection to the Roman government, or servants or slaves who had done something so egregious. But Roman citizens would not be crucified. Anyone with dignity would not be crucified. It was for the lowest of the low of the low who received crucifixion. And above and, and, and above all that, there, there was not only the great shame of crucifixion, there, there was the embarrassment. If you, if you notice, and, and we'll talk about it in a moment, but, but the, in crucifixion, the, the individual being crucified would be stripped of, of his clothes. Um, back in Roman day, they would, they would capture people uh, in war and what they would do is they would take the highest ranking officials in war and they would take all these high ranking officials in war clothes off and march them down the streets so as to fully and publicly shame those whom they have defeated. They took that principle and applied it to crucifixion as well so that there could not be a greater embarrassment among those who were being crucified. Now in the crucifixion, what they would do is once they got up to the, to the top of the hill in this case, they, they would take the cross beam and they would either wrap the, the crucified person's arms around the, the, the cross beam with, with a rope or they would nail the, the arms uh, kind of above the wrist or into the hand. And we don't know exactly in Jesus' case whether the nails went into his hand or went into his wrist, but we know that they nailed him up, up on that crossbeam. And then once they put him on the vertical post, what they would do is they would normally twist the legs of the person being crucified so that his, his body and his core is facing forward, but his legs, his side, his feet are facing sideways like this. And then they would kind of bend the knees just a little bit, and then they would put a, a platform right underneath the feet so that the feet could, could kind of touch that platform. 
And you've probably seen pictures of that kind of cross. And sometimes you may be tempted to think that, oh, that was kind of an act of mercy for the, for the person being crucified so that they could kind of stand on that platform. That was not an act of mercy. That was actually an act of cruelty. Because if they would just leave the person dangling like this, then they would have no way to push up. And so therefore, there would be what's called asphyxiation, suffering and immediate choking so that the the, the crucifixion wouldn't last but maybe minutes, possibly an hour. But because there's a platform, they can push up, therefore creating room in the diaphragm to create oxygen and continue to breathe so that the crucifixion doesn't last minutes, it actually lasts hours and sometimes on through the night into 24 hours and beyond. And so that was the nature of the crucifixion as they nailed his feet like this. And so when, the, when John tells us that they crucified him in verse 18, that's the nature of what was going on to Jesus' body. And it is shameful and it is painful and it is awful. Now, I believe that there is irony in the reality that Jesus was not a sinner. He wasn't cruel. He was not, he was not a violator of, 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 of God's law, much less man's law. And, and yet, here he is receiving the worst of the worst of kinds of execution that was devised in the human brain up to this point. The irony is, that he didn't deserve crucifixion, he deserved exaltation. He didn't deserve shame, he deserved honor. He didn't deserve to be scoffed at, he, he deserved to be worshipped. This is the crucifixion of his body and John wants us to clearly see how it happened. The second aspect of Jesus' suffering death is the, the inscription of his royalty. The inscription of his royalty. Pilate had it inscribed up above on a placard, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, from what we understand, pretty much above every cross was a placard that gave the reason for the execution, the crucifixion. So that people could, as, even as they were walking by, could see what this individual did so that they could not repeat what he did so that the Roman government could have some, some sense of control over people's actions. Like, okay, if that, guy did, if that guy did that that's on the placard and he gets crucified because of that, yeah, I think I'll think twice about doing that. And so Pilate puts up there, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. I think there are, there, there are multiple motivations for why Jesus, um, why Pilate had that exact inscription put above Jesus. Um, first, it's, it's likely a, a, a dig at the Jews. Like, He's been trying to release Jesus on multiple occasions in multiple ways so that he doesn't have to crucify him. He's intimidated by Jesus. He's, he's looked at G Jesus in the eyes. He's even gotten uh, information from his wife like, you don't need to have anything to do with this man. Like, he's intimidated by him. 
But the thing about Pilate is he's more intimidated by the fact that possibly the Jews might go to his superior and say, hey, you're har- he's harboring an insurrectionist. You, you, you can't have that. you got to fight. He, was, he, was, he had a greater fear of man than he had a fear of God. So, but nevertheless, he was despising the Jews along the way because they insisted that, that he have him executed. And so he kind of has a dig saying, the king of the Jews, instead of something else. In other words, it's kind of a slap in their face. Um, and then by calling him Jesus of Nazareth, it was probably likely a dig. Like, okay, Jews, this is your king, and he's from Nazareth, a hick town. It's a hillbilly town. Who, who's ever, whatever good has come out of Nazareth. And, and, and by the way, he's your king. He, he's your king. He, he's your royalty. He's your monarch. And he's also um, making sure that everyone knows that he's not going to put up with any type of insurrection to the Roman government so that no guilt can be on his head about how he handles those who would rise up against Caesar because Caesar is king. Now that's his motive. But they look at this. And it's in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. Aramaic is the common language of the Jews. Latin is the common language of the Romans. And Greek is the international language that had been the case since Alexander the Great had come in and kind of conquered the region. So if anybody could read, uh, anybody could, could see what exactly it said. And the Jews are so upset because they're like, he's not our king. He's not our royalty. We're not bowing down to him. He said he was the king of the Jews. That's exactly why we want him crucified in the first place. And Pilate just kind of thumbs his nose at them. He's resolute and he says, listen, what I've written, I have written. In church, there's irony here too because as you know, Jesus is in fact the king. And he is the king of the Jews. Luke chapter 2, when he was born and is brought into the world, tells us that he's the king of the Jews. But not only is he the king of the Jews... He's the king of the world. And not is he just the king of the world. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That is the irony that we need to behold here. And the ascription of his royalty is truer than what even Pilate himself knew. That's the second thing that John wants us to see. The third thing that John wants us to see is the division of his clothes. Verses 23 and 24 there are four soldiers here, kind of half of a battalion, so to, not a battalion, but a, a group as they were clustered in. There's four soldiers, and so they're taking his garments, and, and they're dividing them into four parts here. One for each is probably the head covering that Jesus would wear in the heat of the day. It's his outer garment, it's, it's his belt, and, it, and it's his sandals. Those are probably the four parts. And so each soldier gets one of those. But then there's this undergarment, the, the tunic that, that is seamless. And they're like, well, we can't tear it up. It's, it's nice, and it's, and it's in one piece, and it's not, it's not been pieced together or sewn together. It's all one piece. Let's, let's don't tear it, so let's, let's divide it together. Or let's, let's just divide it, and we'll, we'll cast lots for it, and, and whoever the lot falls on, that we'll, we will get it. And, and John wants us to know that that's actually what happened at the foot of the cross. John wants us to know that the soldiers were gambling for Jesus' clothes, that they had such level of ignorance and irreverence for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that they're, they're at the foot of the cross just gambling over the clothes that they have just stripped Him of. But He also wants us to know that in the midst of their gambling and in the midst of their irreverence and their ignorance that God is doing something that He has already promised that would happen hundreds of years ago. 
the divine purpose of the cross and the execution of Jesus. John then wants us to see in this fourth movement of the execution of Jesus, he wants us to see the provision for his mother. The provision for his mother. Beginning in verse 25. You know, church, what we really see in these three verses, 25, 26, and 27, is we see the mother's love for Jesus. Now, we believe that there are four women here that are in front of the cross watching Jesus. It's it's Mary, Jesus' mother, and then it's his mother's sister, very possibly Salome. And then it's Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And so there are four ladies here who are standing in. Jesus' mother is right there. And I just want to ask you, could you just consider? Could you consider, especially you ladies who have had children or have have children now, and could you imagine your son who has been perfectly obedient all of his life, who has been spectacularly loving, not only to you, but to your whole family, all of his life, and has superseded, who has outdone any dreams that you have for your own child in the way that he cared for people, in the way that he loved and served and sacrificed and considered his life of no value and considered everyone else's life of great value. Could you imagine having a son like that and then you have to go to the top of a hill called the place of a skull and watch him shamed and beaten and executed on a cross as the worst of the worst of the worst. And that is what Mary had to experience on this day. Now, Mary is loving her son through the worst possible thing that could happen. But Jesus looks down in verse 26 and He calls her woman. Now, this is not a a detached term. This is actually a term of endearment. Gune, woman. he's, He's giving her dignity in this moment and he looks at her and then he looks at John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and and he says, woman, behold your son. And then he looks at John and and he says, behold your mother. And you got to be asking the question right now, well, what about Jesus' brothers? Where are they? And it's very possible that they have abandoned not, not the place of a skull, but Jerusalem itself, possibly even Judea. We know that they were unbelieving. We know that they, 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 were, they tried to talk Him away from all of these claims and all of these teachings on multiple occasions. Where are Jesus' brothers? Likely nowhere to be found. But here is John, the apostle whom Jesus loved. And he looks at John in the eyes and he looks at his mother in the eyes and, and says, woman, behold your son and behold your mother. And notice, look down at the loyalty of John the Apostle in verse 27. From that very hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I love that. Because in seeing the identity of Jesus as the great King, the perfect King, there was no hesitation in the Apostle John's mind or in his heart. Whatever the Savior asked me to do, I'll do. Whatever the Savior wants me to do, no matter what cost it is to me, 
No matter what sacrifice it is to me, I will take this woman who is in her, likely her early 50s, who has no source of income, and I will bring her into my home, and I will take care of her the rest of her life. Why? Because my king asked me to do it. So, you have the provision of his mother. The provision for his mother. Fifth, we see the completion of his mission. Verse 28, 29, and 30. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, and in order to fulfill Scripture, he cries out, I thirst. So there's a jar full of sour wine, and they... They take it and have it in a sponge and put it on this bush, this hyssop branch bush, and, and they, they raise it up to Jesus. Now, for you who have read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you realize that there was some wine that was offered to Jesus previous, and He rejects it, this is not the same thing. This is not a contradiction of, of history between the, the Gospel writers. The previous wine that had been offered to Jesus was actually a strong wine that could be used as a sedative that would blunt pain and numb pain. And Jesus was like, no, I don't want any of that. I, I've got to feel the full force of the pain. I've got to feel the full force of the, of the agony and the torture so that I can bear the sins of sinners. And so he rejected that, but at this time, he says, I thirst, and they take it, and they bring it to him, and this is not a sedative. This is a, this is a sour wine. It has vinegar in it, and it is just part of the fulfillment of God's Word that had happened in, in years and centuries past. And so when he says it, he's fulfilling the Word of the Lord that has already been declared. And then, once he had done that, look at verse 30. He cried out, it is finished. It is complete. It is done. It's over. This is the completion of his mission. If he wanted to elaborate, Jesus, when he's saying it is finished, could have elaborated and given a commentary on that and, and, and said, my mission is done. My, the reason I came to planet Earth it's over. It's completed. It's fulfilled. Everything that God called me to do, I've done. Everything that God called me to say, I've said. Every sin that I've been called to pay for has been paid for. The debt is paid. It is over. And because of that, He then bowed His head. You remember when Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me? but I take it myself. See, when he realized and when he said it is finished, that's when he gave himself the permission to bow his head and finish breathing this side of death. He owned even the very time of the last breath that he ever took before he died. Nobody took his life. He gave it up himself. The completion of his mission. Sixth, the handling of his body. The handling of his body. And that's 31 all the way through the end, 37. And so, there are really two aspects of the Roman soldier's handling of his body. And the first is the, the unbrokenness of his bones. 
they go to the, the first guy and, and they, they break the first guy's bones, hit him with a, probably a, a big mallet made of metal, and just, and just likely hit him right in the shins. In 1968, there was an archaeologist who had found just outside of the north of, the Jeru- of Jerusalem's uh, town, they, they found a man who had been crucified, still in the position. I assume still having the wood attached. I, I'm not 100% sure if the wood was still there or not. But one of the man's legs was fractured and the other of the man's legs was broken into a bunch of different pieces. And so what they would do is come by and hit the, man's, hit the crucified man's shins and shatter them so that at that point they could not raise up off of that platform. And so the, all of the weight was on the man's arms, his forearms and his biceps, and so he'd try to pull himself up with his forearms and his biceps, but as you might guess, after just a short period of time, that would get really, really hard on any man, no matter how strong he was, and so likely he would either have a heart attack, he would, he would have a, um, just a, his body would be so stressed, even his brain would stop functioning because uh, oxygen and blood could not get to it and then flow from it the way properly, and so at that point, within a matter of minutes, the, the man would die. And that's what they did. They went by and they broke the bones of the man on the, on the right. Then they broke the bones on the man on the left. And then they get to Jesus and they realize he's already dead. Because he's already breathed his last. And so they don't break his legs. And then a guy takes, one of the soldiers takes with a spear. And, and what his motive was here, we don't exactly know. But he takes it and jabs it into Jesus' body, and blood and water immediately pour out. And the significance of the blood and water, there there are many ideas. There are many biblical commentators and scholars who have much to say about why blood and water poured out. Hey, it's possible that when he uh, put the spear in there, he hit the heart and water and blood came out because that was what would happen to a dead body. There's all these ideas. But theologically... What we need to understand is that as John is describing what all happened at the execution of Jesus, there is this underlying reality of the fulfillment of Scripture, the fulfillment of God's revealed Word. And I want to speak to that in just a, in just a moment. And so the handling of his body is number six. I want us to now speak to, finally, the significance of his work. The significance of his work. And I think I may have misspoken at the beginning. I think I may have said eight aspects, seven. The significance of his work. Church, for those of you who are accustomed to thinking in terms of our big idea, This would be the big idea. This is the significance of the work of Jesus on the cross according to John. Jesus is the perfect King who received shame instead of honor, pain instead of pleasure, execution instead of exaltation in order to fulfill the Word of God and redeem all people who will put their faith in Him. Jesus is the perfect King who received shame instead of honor. Pain instead of pleasure. Execution instead of exaltation in order to fulfill the Word of God and redeem everybody who will put their faith in Him as King. He's the perfect King. 
He's the perfect king. And he fulfilled scripture and he redeems everybody who will put their faith in him as the perfect king. And this is what I want you to understand is that these events on that day 2,000 years ago are not random. They're not coincidental. And by, by coincidental, I mean John has made it clear multiple times that in order to fulfill Scripture, or to fulfill Scripture, or this fulfilled Scripture, if you notice that in our passage, he kept, he kept saying that. And, and we need to understand that, that, that they're not, these events are not random or coincidental, but God intended them, and He revealed them before they ever happened, so that when they did happen, we could see that God sent His Son into the world to redeem us from our sins. Church, this is not trivial truth. This is triumphant truth. And that's what I want us to see. Listen, the first thing that I will say about the fulfillment of Scripture is that in Exodus chapter 12, Phil read it last week. It's the Passover. And God instituted the Passover so that when the blood was slain, when the blood was spilt by the Lamb and it was put over the doorpost, then the angel of God would pass over those who had who were covered by the blood. Well, in Exodus chapter 12, in verse 46, God said that this lamb must not have any broken bones. And there is a sense in which John absolutely knows that, And he's indicating to us that Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb and even fulfills it all the way to the end of no broken bones. Think about John chapter 1 and John chapter 2. John the Baptist cries out, This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John understands that Jesus is the great Passover lamb with no unbroken bones. And I also want you to know regarding the death of Jesus and the spear that goes into his side, it was Jewish custom that whenever the lamb or whenever the animal's blood was spilt, they wanted it to happen fast and they wanted it to gush out to get as much blood as possible and sprinkle it as wide as possible so that it would be symbolic in the covering of all the nation's sins. I don't think it is coincidental that the Roman soldier pierced Jesus and blood gushed out. This is the ultimate Passover lamb who covers the sin of people like me and you. I also want us to, to see a couple more things. Deuteronomy chapter 21, God actually says if there's somebody who's cursed and hangs on a tree, then you've got to get him down off of that tree so that The Sabbath and worship will not be defiled. It will not be made unclean. And so the Jews, this is so much irony, the Jews are taking the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the great monarch, the great royalty, the perfect person and the perfect king, and they're putting him up on a tree because he's cursed and they hate him and they're jealous of him and they have great antagonism toward him, but they're also saying we've got to get him down so that we can honor God and worship God tomorrow. Can you not see the irony of that? The contradiction of that? But they're adamant. They want to be as close to the letter of the law as they possibly can of the Old Testament. But they want to disown Jesus 
as their king. You know, maybe, maybe there needs to be a warning for us who love the scriptures in some way. We want to make sure that we love Christ and the Christ of the scriptures, not just the letters of the law. Now, also, John wants us to understand that in Psalm 22, David pens this psalm, and it's, it's a psalm of forsakenness. It's a psalm of execution. It's a psalm that says these These evil men encircle me. They insult me. They scoff at me. They they take my garments and divide them. They gamble for my articles of clothing. And everyone around is laughing and scoffing as they see me a worm and not a man. That's Psalm 22 in a nutshell. And that's exactly what John quotes as they fulfill the prophecy of Scripture. Psalm 22.15 his tongue sticks to his jaws. Psalm 22:18, they divide garments and cast lots for his clothing. And then Zechariah 12:10, if you see the end of our passage, Yahweh is actually speaking in Zechariah 12:10. He says, "They will look on me, and on him they have pierced." It says they will mourn and they will grieve but they will look on me whom they have pierced. God is is forecasting. He's prophesying about what is going to happen to the Messiah, to the King that He anoints to be the leader and deliverer of His people, Israel, and who is going to bring them into the salvation in which they have always longed for. This is the significance of His work. Jesus is the greatest King, the perfect King, sent by God the Father to not just merely to fulfill Scripture, but to fulfill the punishment that we deserve and so that we could have the life that He has earned for us by His righteousness and His holiness and His obedience to the Father. The significance of His work is not merely that there were some few things written in Scripture that said, hey, this is what the Messiah is going to do. That's not the ultimate significance. The ultimate significance is that God the Father had a plan to rescue a people like me and you. And He didn't want us at all to think that somehow these events happened coincidentally or randomly and now we can gather them all into a book and look back and say, hey, maybe this happened or maybe maybe we can draw some good things from this man Jesus. He was a good teacher. He had some good principles. It, it, it it, He would be a good one to follow and we can mismatch with some other religious leaders throughout the past and some other philosophers and we can have a way to live. No, God is saying, listen, I've had a plan from the very foundation of the world. I revealed my word and my plan in a book. And then I sent my son and he fulfilled what my book already said so that you could know when you read it, you have a king who is the king of kings whom you worship and love and bow down to. And as you do, you will have life forever. So, what do we do with this? I think we're already experiencing right now. But in the significance of his work, This is what we need to have. We need to have awe. A-W-E. We need to to have an awe of the severity of sin. Jesus didn't just come and live as a model for us. Jesus came and suffered as a substitutionary sacrifice for us because sin is so terrible that it requires a sacrifice. And sin is so horrible that it requires judgment. And sin is so heinous that it requires hell. 
And Jesus experienced that on our behalf. We need to be in awe of the severity of our sin and the severity of our heinousness of lack of love for God. We need to be in awe of the sacrifice and the suffering of Jesus. We we need to almost like can't believe that the Son of God would be willing to endure what He endured on our behalf. What measure of love is this? What depth and height and breadth and width of love does the Savior have for our souls that He would endure what He endured on the cross that we could have life with Him forever? What love of God? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, let us have awe. Let us have awe of the Savior. Secondly, how should we respond? Announcement. Announcement. Once we... Once we have this awe of Christ, we need to announce that the Savior has come, that He's the perfect King, and that He loves sinners like us. John is announcing it. Notice, if you look back down at the Scriptures, notice that he says in what verse 35, He who saw it has borne witness His testimony is true and He knows that He's telling the truth that you also may believe. Guys, this is unprecedented in the Gospel of John. Read John 1 through 19 and you're not going to find John actually speaking directly to his audience and saying, hey, you need to do this or you need to do that or you should not do this or you should not do that. But right here in the moment of the crucifixion of the King of Kings, he actually just takes off the narrative and he looks at them in the eyes and he says, you need to believe in this King. And that's exactly what you and I need to do. Let's follow the example of John and tell the world that they need to believe in this King. And third, anticipation. Awe, announcement, and anticipation. Andreas Kostenberger, in in meditating on this passage, wrote, All humanity will have to look at the pierced Messiah at the last judgment to receive either final deliverance or final punishment. There is a sense in which spiritually we were at Golgotha the day that Jesus shed His blood for us. But we weren't there physically. I mean, we can, we can envision, we could, we can envision it but we we weren't there but one day we will see him and we will see his hands and we will see his feet and we will know that this is the king whom we have longed for and loved and anticipated all the days of our regenerate life. And now we get to behold Him and be like Him. Father, we pray that You would create in us awe, announcement, and anticipation 
of our great God and King, Jesus Christ, the King of kings. We pray it in His name. Amen.